Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everyone. It's so good to be back after a short break. Uh, I am very happy to be doing this uh, live stream tonight. We have an extremely juicy topic, and I already see the chat quite active with a lot of lovely comments from everyone. I'm so happy to see uh, everyone joining. Ahmad, Ahmad Hamede. Hello, my friend. It's been a while. We should uh, really find time to catch up. Um, Ahmedou, thank you very much for all your support. And everyone else, hello and welcome. Um, this is, a, again, as I mentioned, a juicy topic for us tonight. And we're going to be talking about tech interviews. Uh, everybody loves tech interviews, of course, uh, because they are so nice. <laughs> uh, but I have to start with, uh, with the following. So first of all, everything in this live stream today is purely my own personal opinion. And it does not reflect anything on my employer. It does not represent my employer in any way, shape, or form. And everything I say here does not contain any secrets uh, from my day-to-day -day work. Some of you may know, some of you might not. Might not. I, I currently work as a senior solution architect at GitHub. And uh, yeah, what I'm going to be sharing with you today is what I've seen in the industry throughout my experience. I'm going to be sharing with you my thoughts on uh, tech interviews, how they are, what they look like, how you should prepare for them. So this live stream is going to be split into two parts. The first part, I am going to be focusing on uh, preparing for tech interviews in general, like, you know, whatever, wherever you are, whether it's a startup, it's an enterprise. Um, we're going to be talking, talking a little bit about uh, tech interviews in different locations across the world because they vary greatly. And... Um, then in the first part, I'm going to talk about interviews in big tech, what that looks like, how you can prepare for them. Uh, and I'm not going to repeat a lot of what is already in the market. There are plenty of videos that show you how you can prepare for tech interviews. I'm going to give you my perspective on them, right? What I have seen and my thoughts on the matter. Uh, hopefully, they will be of added value to you. And in the second part of this session, I'm going to be talking about how you could interview other people and how you should prepare for your interviews, especially if this is the first time you do your interviews and you don't have a lot of experience in this area. I'm going to be sharing with you how I prepare for the interviews that I conduct and how I um, how I approach things, right? So um, let's start with the first part and let's give a little bit of a background. Uh, so throughout my career, I've done over a thousand interviews for other people <laughs> and you might ask me how the hell did you do that it takes it takes ages to do these interviews right well uh throughout three or three years of uh building se factory i have uh, interviewed a lot of uh, students coming right out of university who wanted to join the program and se factory for those who don't know it was a software engineering boot camp that was set up in lebanon where we took fresh engineering and computer science graduates, trained them intensively for 14 weeks and helped them find employment afterwards. And the program was quite competitive because we really wanted to help the people we could make an immediate impact on them within four weeks and set them up for success. So uh, I have interviewed over a thousand people for this or students for this program. And we had an acceptance rate of about uh, 10%. And uh, yeah, beyond SE Factory, I have done a lot of interviews for um, for a lot of different companies and services. And I currently also interview for GitHub, right? So I conduct a lot of interviews for the new recruits that we uh, are hiring at, at GitHub. So this feedback and this uh, whatever I'm going to share with you is based on this experience. And let's start with the first uh, thing. Interviews are a necessary evil to get a tech job or to get a job in tech. 
everybody is complaining that they want to hire developers. They want to hire the best developers they can find. Everybody wants the top-notch developer. If you ask every, anyone, what does a top-notch developer mean? Everyone will say something completely different. Uh, and that is, I think, a little bit the problem with tech entities. There's no standard for them. There's no real mechanisms to measure the abilities of developers. And everybody is opinionated of what we should be measuring, how we should be looking at it, and how we should be uh, assessing developers and whether they are good for our environment or not. So this is, uh, this is creating a lot of frustration. And I'm going to share with you a little bit why uh, big tech companies interview the way they do. Um, and this is the reason also why uh, we cannot really categorize uh, interviewing uh, based on the types of companies, because it's very, very arbitrary. Uh, start a startup, I have seen startups interviewing in the same way that big tech interviews, six or seven interviews with whiteboarding questions and lead code uh, questions, and I don't know what. And I wonder, like, what the hell are you folks doing? Like, why would you interview in that style? And this is not to say that startups are doing it wrong or anything like that, but there is really no justification. Uh, and if you ask them, why do you do it? They say, because big companies are doing it that way. Well, <laughs> that's, where, that's where you're really wrong and it shouldn't, it shouldn't be this way. Um, so again, the point I'm trying to make is that interviews vary greatly across companies and you cannot really pinpoint or lock, lock how companies interview in general. So you should understand that it, it, it varies and you should adapt based on that. Now, first thing, as an interviewer, as an interviewee, as someone who is being interviewed, don't be intimidated to ask what the interview process is going to be like. Um, there is some implicit or un, um, unspoken rule as if interviews should be secret. And the candidate should not really know what they should expect. We should surprise them in some, in some way. And I really don't understand that. Like, what's the point of surprising people through the interview process? Um, if the interviewer and the company is not sharing with you the details of the interviewing process, ask for it. It's very important. So when you start your phone screens or when you have your first call with the recruiter or maybe the hiring manager or maybe your peers, I don't know what the first call is going to be like. Ask, what is the interview process like? Don't be intimidated. It's okay. It's a totally fine question. You should be in the know, and there should be no surprises in the interview process. Why? Because you should be prepared, obviously. If, you, if they want to measure you uh, and if they want to test you, you should, be, you should have the capacity to prepare for your interview, right? And uh, that, that, that really helps if you start asking questions uh, at the beginning. The interview process should be transparent and they should be uh, communicated beforehand. And if they do, that's a very good indication and you should move forward. Now, if you are approached by a recruiter, which is often the case in this hot market, everyone wants to hire software engineers, obviously. Um, remember that recruiters are on your side. Why? Because recruiters, uh, their success is measured by your success. So they would love for nothing more than for you to be hired, right? Recruiter's only purpose is to find great candidates for the hiring managers. And the sooner you get hired, the sooner you get employed. And if even if you pass, if you get hired with as little interviews as possible, that is the best outcome for them because that defines their success. And that means that they are doing a great job in identifying talent and making sure that this talent is successful. Um, recruiters will have a really hard time if they uh, 
bring in someone on board and they go through all of the interview loops, but at the end they fail or they don't accept the offer and whatnot. This is probably the worst case scenario because they've invested already so much time with you in the process. So remember that recruiters are on your side, which means that they will help you. They can give you insights. They will share with you tips and tricks and what you should prepare and you should leverage this relationship. Build a good relationship with your recruiter because they can help you navigate the interview process and you will be much more relaxed and uh, much more comfortable doing so. Now, um, next, what I wanna talk about is the forms of assessment for coding skills. And this is something that I can categorize because I've seen them all, and I don't think there's any other form, uh, to be honest, that I've seen. So first one I've seen a lot is whiteboarding plus lead code type of questions. And whiteboarding means that uh, whether it's remote or virtual or on-site, on it basically means that you will go up on a whiteboard, you will have nothing but a pen uh, or a Sharpie or something, and then they, you will get a, a random question. It could be a puzzle. It could be one of the lead code type of questions, which are, you know, I consider them uh, coding puzzles. I'm not a fan, but yeah. The, the purpose of these questions is uh, to gauge how you would behave and how you would reason about the new problem that you face and how you would think about that problem as a developer. And the hypothesis is that if you attempt to solve these things and you share loudly your uh, way of thinking, this will allow the interviewer uh, to assess whether you are a good programmer or not. Whether this is true or not, this is debatable. But this is the first form. The second form is a take-home assessment or assignment. Uh, it's basically something you get via email. They will tell you, I, I need you to build a, I don't know, web application that exposes a certain API uh, that receives a certain type of input and, for example, returns a certain type of output. This is for a back-end job. If it's for a front-end job, maybe you will, they will ask you to create a React app, write some documentation for it, so on and so forth. I prefer this type of uh, uh, coding um, assessment because it gives me the luxury of time the comfort of my home, I would be more relaxed. I would be thinking through uh, thinking through the problem more in depth. I can research whatever I want to research and I can really make sure that I do the best work I can uh, for this assignment. This is my preference. This is the second form. Uh, the third form is a time-bound live test, which basically it could be, again, remote or on-site. Uh, you are given a problem and instead of solving it on a whiteboard, you would actually write code in some um live coding or live uh, or code sharing platform uh and uh, this is this is how that would look like and you will be again just like you would do with whiteboarding you will be assessed on your coding skills it doesn't really matter if you make some typos or mistakes what matters is again the reasoning the logic and how you would process the the, the problem uh, the fourth type is also one of my preferred mechanisms which is pair programming so uh, instead of you solving the problem alone, you would actually pair with the interviewer on a problem and you would solve the, prob the, the issue together. Either you would be the one writing code and the interviewer would be interjecting, giving feedback, so on and so forth, or the other way around. Or it could be a combination of both, where the first part you would be writing and solving the problem, writing the code, or maybe building a feature, and then the interviewer will be, uh, you will switch with the interviewer for the second part. Um, and finally, the fifth form, which is uh, the simplest, it uh, is um, just a random Q&A. Someone will sit down, ask you some random technical questions. I, I believe this type doesn't really yield any interesting results uh, just because, yeah, I mean, you could ask about object-oriented programming and polymorphism forever, but 
that doesn't really tell if you are a good programmer or not, right? You can just memorize the definitions and, and you can proceed, but that doesn't, that's not really a good sign that uh, you, you know your stuff, right? So these are the five forms uh, that I've seen. If you have seen other forms, please drop them in the chat. If you have questions about what I've just mentioned, also drop them in the chat. For everyone watching through LinkedIn, I am really sorry, but LinkedIn has a bug with comments and I cannot really see any of your comments. So if you uh, would like to interact or engage with me, uh, please do so by going to YouTube. I will uh, drop the link over here. So you can uh, go to this URL, glitch.stream. You can watch the live stream from YouTube and you can drop your comments in the chat and I can um, definitely respond to you. But I'm sorry, if you're dropping stuff on LinkedIn, I cannot see them at all. This has been a problem for the past few live streams. Okay. Now, um, one thing I want to mention also about being an interviewee is a lot of people that get rejected, they don't get rejected for technical skills, as I've seen. Um, and they don't get rejected because they failed the technical tests. So the abundance of people complaining on the internet that they got, they got rejected for one place or another, they complained that they have they didn't do well in the technical test, they did not really solve the problem, so on and so forth. And my bet is that they got rejected for because they are not a culture fit. And in my opinion, uh, uh, that's way more important than your technical skills. Because if you have the fundamentals right when it comes to technical skills, you can learn the framework. You can learn the language. You can learn the technology stack. You can learn the database that you haven't touched or used before. That's totally okay. And nobody is expecting you to be uh, pushing to production from day one, especially when we talk about larger, bigger companies where the ramp up time can be weeks to months instead of you know, a few days. So um, I think people get rejected a lot because they are not a culture fit. And what does it mean to be a culture fit? It means the way you think and the way you behave on a daily basis, the way you would collaborate with others, the way you would solve problems, the way you, have, you manage your own ego, the way you would manage learning. How do you grow? How do you learn? How do you approach it? It's all about these behavioral questions. And to be honest, there's really no point in memorizing any answer for any of the behavioral questions. It's just a matter of who you are, how you behave, and how you conduct yourself. Um, there is always a, I can probably have more future sessions about the behavioral aspect of how you can be a high growth, high impact uh, engineer, right? And by high growth, I mean, you have the capacity to learn more and you have the capacity to keep on teaching yourself new concepts and new, new topics. Uh, and when it comes to behavior, also how you can reduce the ego, the hubris of the youth, and how you can conduct yourself in a way that is um, easy and the, in a way that is uh, collaborative with the team and the way that it doesn't really clash. And, and let me clarify this uh, when it comes to behavior. Having strong opinions, it's totally okay. It's about how you express these opinions. And in a lot of the interviews that, that you go through, you will be asked for examples. And it's very important for you to be able to provide concrete examples about a situation where uh, you lost your patience, for example, and how did you conduct yourself in a situation where you were wrong or you wronged a colleague and how did you behave afterwards? It's okay, we're all human, we all make mistakes, right? So it's important to prepare these scenarios and to have these examples in mind. And it's important not to create or fake these examples. You should get them from your 
previous experience. And if you don't have these examples, that means you either did not really reflect enough or you did not really expose yourself enough to the very important scenarios in life and in the workplace. Um, and these, are, these two are very important. Now, when it comes to uh, further assessments, always remember to ask questions and get information and verbalize your thoughts. Uh, especially, this is especially important when you are doing your technical assessments, but also when it comes to behavioral questions. It's okay to ask your interviewer questions, right? Um, tell them, give me, give me an example of what you're looking for. Uh, how can I understand or what you just, the sentence you just said? Can you please repeat this last piece? I did not really fully get it. Uh, what do you think? The, it, don't respond with a question, of course, but try to incorporate the question in your answer if, if necessary, right? Uh, do not challenge your interviewer because that doesn't reflect good on you, but uh, ask the question as from genuine curiosity and genuine, genuinely uh, wanting to know uh, how, how things work or what is the intention of the interviewer, right? So uh, one more thing that uh, is very important during whiteboard or coding assessments is to verbalize what you are thinking. A lot of people think that their job is to sit down, take a problem and think about it very deeply and then throw out a solution on the whiteboard and that's it. That's not the point. The interviewer is there to gauge how you communicate. Uh, I do technical interviews all the time. And what I want to hear from candidates is not just their ability to technically solve a problem. I want to hear how they communicate their solution to the problem, whether they, are, they understand the topics very well to a point where they can communicate it easily. And sometimes I ask them the same question multiple in different uh, ways, just to gauge also whether they can, uh, you know, uh, whether they have a good command on the topic and they can really uh, answer my question. It's not a trick, right? It's, it's just a way, if you really understand the topic, you can verbalize it and you can communicate it in so many different ways and you can make it very easy for the other person to understand what you're saying, even if it's a very complicated technical topic. And this is something for you also to challenge yourself and to practice. Uh, try to explain very difficult technical topics to people who don't understand tech. If they understand what you're talking about, that means you understand the topic very well. If you're not able to verbalize the topic in a simple way, that means you yourself don't understand it at depth that is necessary for you to simplify um, you know, the concept. So one important thing that, for example, people in the military and specifically in submarines do, uh, and this is coming from a great book that I read on leadership uh, and, and uh, the work that one of the, I think, lieutenants or, or captains did on... Uh, uh, a, a U.S. submarine, uh, the Santa Fe submarine, is that he introduced the verbalization of actions to his crew. So previously in a submarine, uh, for it to operate properly, a lot of people need to do multiple tasks uh, in sync and they need to you know, be very timely and they need to have them in, done in very specific times. And if people don't communicate when they have started and finished a certain activity, the others will not be able to know when they should start their own activity and end it, right? So one thing that they have introduced is their on, always on communication of the activities that they are, that the crew is, is, is doing, whether they are, uh, you know, tilting the submarine up or down, whether they are changing certain gauges, so on and so forth, they verbalize it. They say, I am doing this, 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 and thing, and I have finished right now, as an example. 
Try to do that also in your whiteboard examples. Try to think out loud. Try to say, okay, now I have this set of information. This looks like information that I can put in an array, for example, as opposed to an array list or maybe another vector or something. Uh, I would put them in an array because I think the array gives me the, uh, I don't know, the space allocation to put this amount of information. And I, I don't believe this information will grow beyond this specific point. And here is a good example where you can say to the interviewer, um, in your requirement, do you think that this memory allocation is good enough or will we need more? And then the interviewer will respond, for example, with, yeah, this is good enough. Let's proceed because it might not be a critical point at that, at that time. And from there, you gained a new data point that you didn't have at the beginning, right? And, and then you can proceed. Now, a few rules of thumb before we start talking about uh, FANG and Big Tech uh, are the following. Uh, so it's just a summary of what just, I just said. Uh, ask questions to get information and verbalize your thoughts. Practice, practice, practice technical uh, problems until they become second nature to you, right? Uh, and when we say practice, here's the thing. So people assume that practice means that you solve the problem one time or twice and yeah, that's it. You just do it, I don't know, once, one hour a week and you're good to go. Maybe if you know the, the information already at a, at a decent level, one hour a week might be enough. But practice means continuously doing it while creating a time space in between the different practice sessions. This is how we learn. It's very important for you to discover and understand how the brain works and how the learning mechanisms work. Spaced uh, learning is very, very effective. Cramming does not work. Why? Because when you learn a certain topic, it doesn't really get engraved into your brain and memory and, and you know, um, until you sleep. And deep sleep is very important for this information to become sort of permanent, to move from the, your, your immediate short-term memory into your long-term memory. And this is why spaced repetition uh, creates these connections in your brain and they, they, it, it, enfor it enforces, sorry, it, uh, create stronger synapses or stronger connections in your mind. So when you learn a certain topic on a day, you take a pause, then you come back to it the, uh, one day later or maybe two days later, and then you don't necessarily need to repeat it exactly the same, but you know, like connecting topics, you will have a uh, better uh, recollection of it. And the more you do it, the more, uh, the stronger the topic will be in your mind. So space repetition is very important, especially when you are trying the, to solve the lead code type of questions. It's not always fun. I know it's intimidating. I also know uh, it's evil. Yeah, what can I tell you? Uh, unfortunately, this is the way it is with, with a lot of the big tech companies. I'm going to have some comments about this in a little bit. Uh, but yeah, this is my advice for how you should study and apply yourself. Uh, it's as if you are learning an instrument. You're not going to learn it on the first day. You're going to need time space repetition for you to become more and more effective. Learning is pretty much just the same. Okay. Now, uh, don't over-prepare non-technical questions. Please don't be prepare your behavioral questions. It's okay to prepare examples. It's okay to uh, come up with evidence. It's okay to, you know, just think about the type of types of scenarios you might be asked about. It's okay to research it online and see what, uh, what the communities are talking about, how the interview process is, but don't over-prepare your exact answers. So for example, if someone asks you, what is your, um, give me an example of a situation where you, uh, 
deployed uh, to production and it failed. Uh, it's good to have an example of that, but don't over prepare your answer in the sense that you come up with this cliche responses to it. Just be genuine, be yourself, talk about the story, have reference points, but don't have a script that you basically repeat, uh, you know, in your interview. Uh, and a couple of things also, when it's right, when the interview is going well, you will know it. When you are a good fit for the place you are interviewing, you will feel it. You will feel like this is a strong match. It's not just about how you answer. It's about the whole dynamic. It's about the vibe. It's about the, the, the interview feeling. There's a feeling that goes in the interview between you and the interviewer, right? It could be common or it could not be common. It depends on your level of emotion, emotion intelligence. But if it, there's a vibe in the interview that you feel if it's really going well or not. And if it's, if it's going well, you will, you will know it. Um, if it's not going well, that's totally okay. And what I want to say also is it's okay not to be a good fit. Interviews are difficult. Interviews are tricky. If your interviewer also woke up and it's not really a good day for them, you're not, unfortunately, you're not going to have a good experience. I'm sorry, but as much as we say that we want to be objective, we want to give the best experience to people, we are human beings. Uh, as much as we say we want to standardize the interview, it's not going to happen. Uh, your interviewer might be having a very difficult day at work. They are trying their best to be patient, but you know, they're not having a really good day. They might not be very responsive to your inquiries. They might not really work well with you. This is not necessarily your fault, but just it happens, right? And uh, you have to be able to read the room and navigate it. And someone who is experienced in being, an inter being interviewed will be able to turn things around and they will be able to salvage themselves, right? Uh, especially if you, if you know your stuff and you have done these interviews multiple times and you've practiced them well. Now, uh, also, sometimes you're just not there yet in terms of your experience level, right? I have interviewed for AWS, I think, eight years ago. I was pretty early in my career uh, and um, I did no shit. Uh, and I thought that I was, uh, I was an expert in, in certain areas and I really did not know what I was saying. Like the recruiter really tried to help me. The hiring manager was okay with my resume. Uh, but then when it came to the technical assessment, I flunked it miserably. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I really appreciate the patience of the interviewer because uh, I really did not prepare well. And at the same time, I didn't really know what to expect. And uh, yeah, I just was, the position was just way out of my league uh, for the role. And, uh, and that's okay. You just have to accept it and accept that sometimes uh, things will not go the way uh, you want them to go. And my advice for everyone freshly graduated, or if you have one or two or three years under your belt, please do not apply to big tech companies. They're not looking for you. They're looking for the people who have been eight, nine, 10 years in the field. They want the really senior people. Of course, big tech companies are gonna say, we wanna hire juniors, we wanna invest in them. And there are programs where there are actually, they are actually hiring uh, juniors and they really want you to grow. And there are junior levels where you can enter. However, you have to understand that the location where you are interviewing from matters a lot. So, for example, uh, and, and now we are jumping into the territory of uh, talking about big tech, and I have a lot of thoughts on this. So, uh, bear with me. Uh, first of all, I'm going to take in some uh, questions from the stream. Um, 
I see here from Ahmedou, how can we find remote jobs as fresh graduates? I know this might not fall under this topic. Well, to be honest, I mean, like there are endless job boards. Um, there are plenty of stuff online. Uh, there are plenty of stuff. Uh, I, have, I don't have immediate references for these job boards, but I have seen plenty of them. On Hacker News, every few days, there's someone who's posting a job board for remote jobs. If you look out the history of the front page of Hacker News, you will find plenty of these references. And I think uh, just if you just simply Google for that, you will definitely find uh, good resources. That doesn't mean that you will be eligible for a lot of these jobs. Uh, there are still many barriers, even for remote jobs. Uh, and uh, yeah, you should, you should, again, it might take some time for you to get them. And as a fresh graduate, yeah, that's going to be tricky as well. Because again, let me explain the demand for software engineers. Everyone is complaining that they cannot find software engineers. But the problem is they are looking for a very specific level of skill in software engineers. They are lacking senior software engineers. And more importantly, in developed economies, they want senior engineers at the salary of a junior engineer. I'm sorry, but this is the reality. It's very difficult to find employment as a junior developer. Your best bet is to join a startup or a medium-sized to small-sized company. This is the best place for you to start your career. You're going to learn a lot. You're going to have a lot of experience. And then once you have that experience, you can start leveling up. You can start joining bigger companies, enterprises even, because then you can come in and add value from day one and they don't have to teach you everything from, from, the, from the beginning or the fundamentals. If you join a program like SE Factory, for example, and I'm going to mention another program in a little bit that will help you with your uh, big tech uh, careers, um, but these programs might be able to accelerate you and it's very important to join programs that tie their success to yours, meaning they will only uh, get funding or get paid or whatever if they can find you a good and suitable job. Uh, these programs exist, SE Factor is one of them. And uh, yeah, they can help you a lot in propelling your career as a junior developer because their success is tied to your success. Uh, Rabia is saying, when you say practice, do you have a preferred site? Code Forces, SPOJ, no, I don't have a preferred site. What I have seen, however, is that a lot of the American companies are relying more and more on lead code and lead code questions are becoming sort of the industry standard. Uh, and a lot of people just don't practice only uh, the free lead code version, they buy the premium version and then they practice the premium uh, solutions. And to be honest, uh, what I have seen also is that a lot of these questions, they come or fall under broad categories. There are patterns that keep on repeating. And when you start identifying these patterns, uh, they, um, they just keep on, again, uh, repeating. And then you will have five or six patterns. And then whatever problem gets thrown your direction, uh, once you identify the pattern, coming up with the solution becomes relatively easier. If you don't uh, learn the patterns, uh, yeah, it's going to take you a while to solve and, and, uh, and uh, figure out the solution for all of these problems. And it's not a good idea to remember or memorize the solutions. Again, you have to find patterns. Once you find them, everything else will become uh, easier. So Allah, uh, Allah or Allah, I'm not sure. Uh, Sulaiman is saying, uh, how to know you are ready for a job as a junior developer when and when to start applying? Okay, great. Uh, great question. So in my opinion, as soon as you graduate, 
this is the perfect time for you to start applying. Uh, that's not your fault uh, that you lack certain skills because you were promised in your edu university education that they're going to prepare you for the job market. Unfortunately, a lot of the university educations don't prepare you for the job market because they are teaching you a computer science program, for example. And they are preparing you to be a computer scientist because they think the computer science fundamentals are what are necessary. And then the technical skills, you can just pick them up, I don't know, maybe in an afternoon or something. They're not totally wrong. I agree that the fundamentals are important, but people need direction, especially as junior developers. I know for myself, I needed a lot of mentoring in early on in my career. A lot of people helped give me some focus and direction on what I should be learning. And they didn't really necessarily say, okay, learn this programming language, but they said, it's important to look in this direction. It's important to look in that direction. So um, as soon as you graduate, go for it, start applying, but also build, build, build. That's everything. All, I, I tell this all the time to everyone. You have to build side projects. Theory alone does not work. Uh, doing this uh, lead coding stuff early on as you graduate doesn't help. This is not what uh, companies uh, will hire you for. Build actual products, build services. Uh, if you can uh, work as a freelancer, build websites, build mobile apps, this is where you get the best experience. Uh, deploy these, not just build them on your own machine. Building something on your laptop is something. Deploying it to an environment is something else. This is where the most of the learning will happen. Uh, Contribute to open source if you can. Read the open source code if you can. You will learn plenty of stuff there. At the very least, find an open source project that is interesting. Fork or clone the repository locally. Try to get it up and running. This exercise alone over a weekend, it will teach you a lot of stuff about the technologies that were used in this environment. And setting up a dev, dev environment is one of the most critical skills as a junior developer that you can learn. Uh, especially if you come from a Windows background or, 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 or whatnot, setting up a VM in Linux, for example, setting up an environment, dev environment there, playing around with it, getting to, to a point where you are productive, you're able to publish something, and then putting it, pushing it to production would be uh, really, really good. Uh, I see also uh, Hacktoberfest is a good opportunity for open source contributions, 100%, and even beyond Hacktoberfest, go for open source repositories on GitHub, any project that you fancy and look for labels that say oh, a good first issue or good uh, good first, um, yeah, good first issue basically. And these are issues that could be bug, bugs, it could be troubleshooting some problem, it could be contributing to the documentation. It's basically issues that are simple for a beginner to pick up and they would be uh, suitable for you to play around with them. Even if you don't really push back the code, just playing around with it, discovering the environment is already good enough, right? Thank you for that recommendation. I'm not sure, is it Shafi, right? I, I, I'm sorry, I'm, I cannot see your real name for this. So uh, thank you very much for this, uh, for this comment. All right, I see a question from Hussain. Uh, he is saying, can we easily get a fully remote job? Lots of remote jobs are remote, yes. Lots of jobs are remote, sorry. Uh, but having sponsorship, but by having sponsorship as well and having the ability to travel, or companies prefer the remote jobs without being on site sometimes? All right, great question. So let's answer the topic of working abroad. Uh, a lot of you folks probably are coming from, uh, you know, the Middle East region uh, or North Africa, uh, Egypt, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, whatever. Uh, I come from there as well. <laughs> and... Uh, 
working abroad is a, a difficult topic. I'll tell you why. So as a company, let's say I own a company, whether small or large or whatever. First of all, I have I am bound by law of the European country or the American country to first try to find employees for this position in the country itself. So I have to promote the position in the country itself for a certain period of time. And this, of course, varies depending on the regulations of the country. But in general, this is how it is. And then if I cannot find people to fulfill the job in the country, in the designated country, I will start be looking abroad. And when I say looking abroad, that also means I would be looking at people who I can bring in much more easily. For example, Eastern Europe. If I want to hire from Western Europe, which are sort of considered the richer countries, they can start looking at Eastern Europe first because they're not going to go to the Middle East first. They're going to go to that region. And then when they deplete their options in that region, they're probably going to start looking for other markets that are affordable. And that's when they're going to start looking into markets where the time zone is closer and relocation rules are easier, right? Because the company needs to abide by the laws of the, of the country. And if the country does not recognize that this type of work is required or demanded in that country, it, the companies are going to have a very hard time sponsoring you for a visa. The Netherlands, for example, has a very nice program. It's called the Highly Skilled Migrant Program. And they have recognized that, um, that tech work in general is highly in demand and they are facilitating the uh, remote uh, the visas for people to move to the Netherlands. So countries like this, right? You need to start trying to find employment in them. And now I'm giving you the tip, right? So Germany also has a program like that. France has a similar program. Although going to France might be a little bit trickier in terms of paperwork, but these are countries that are hiring en masse software engineers because there's a huge demand and they have understood that in the markets that I've just described, there's a lot of untapped talent and they can bring in this talent much cheaper than the existing talent in the markets, right? So keep that in mind that the first offer you're going to get from a European company or, or, or whatever is going to be very, very low. Now, when it comes to the United States, I will tell you from now, unless you have 10 years of experience under your belt, forget it. Fresh grad, three, four, five years of experience in some startup or mid-sized company. If you don't really build at scale and if you have not built the, the next generation product, finding employment for a US-based company, I'm not talking about remote work. Remote work is easy because they don't have to worry about relocating. But getting H-1B to the United States, which is the work visa, it's extremely, extremely, extremely difficult. And more likely than not, they're not going to be able to get you the H-1B visa, no matter how big the company is. And the company is not going to take that much of a bet on a junior developer or a mid-career developer to, to go through all of this pain uh, just so that they can get you to the United States. Uh, same thing for Canada or the UK. Uh, no, the UK and Canada are easier, for sure. The United States is the main problem. The United States is, is the most difficult to get into. Europe is uh, relatively easy. Of course, some European countries. The UK right now, it's also a big tech hub, and they are hiring in on mass. So the UK is also a good place for you to find good employment and for you to be hired easily and for the companies to be able to bring you on board at a, a much easier, uh, so much more easily, sorry.
Canada, I don't know much about it, but I suppose that Canada, they have looser immigration laws and it should be relatively also uh, easy because they are sort of closer to the European side than it is to the United States. So, um, yeah, again, United States, not going to happen. Forget it. If you are a junior developer, uh, Europe, focus on Europe, Western Europe specifically, and uh, you will have a much better uh, option. Okay. Uh, now, let's talk about big tech. And let's start by talking about what uh, does the FANG or big tech uh, hiring process look like. But first, let me get a sip of water. And uh, in the meantime, if anyone comes up with other questions, please feel free to drop them in the chat. I would love to share my uh, knowledge with you. All right, let's see. So big tech. The process goes along uh, the following lines. So first of all, you will probably get a call from the recruiter after you submit your application. So either you will apply yourself, you will submit your application, which generally has a very low chance of succeeding. Why? Because um, these companies rely a lot on referrals and they get like probably, if they open up a position, they will probably get like 200, 300 applicants in the first few hours. It's highly competitive. Everyone wants to work there. They will be bombarded with applications and filtering, going through these applications, that's not going to happen. Don't expect someone to sit down there and just go through all of the resumes that have been uh, pushed because it's a lot of work and it's uh, low value work. So they rely a lot on referrals. So if you know someone and you have worked with someone previously in a big tech company, they can refer you, meaning that they can submit an application on your behalf internally. And this will bump you up to the top of the queue. Why? Because the assumption is that if you have worked with someone who is already working at this company, then you might be sharing the same skill level. You might be sharing the same cultural and behavioral aspects, which means that you might be a highly qualified candidate for the role uh, that they are uh, that they are looking for. So, uh, or the other option for you to also be bumped up to the queue, uh, it's being connected. Uh, sorry, a recruiter will approach you, and this is not very uncommon. Uh, especially if you move to Europe, you will be bombarded with your recruiters. They will find you. They will be able to spot you in searches. And if you have certain keywords that they are looking for, and this is where optimizing your profile will come in handy. If you have certain keywords that they are looking for and you have a specific set of experience that uh, matches the requirements that they have, because recruiters are not necessarily technical people, right? They will get requirements from the hiring manager and the team, and they will start looking for the best possible candidates. So once they find these candidates, they will approach you, they will message you over LinkedIn or email or whatever, telling you that there's a good opportunity for you. Do you want to consider it or not? And if you say yes, they will start the process immediately, which means that you will be bumped up to the top of the queue and they will process your application uh, right away. So after this uh, initial contact with the recruiter, uh, they will pretty much schedule a short call with you to make sure that you have good communication skills, that you are... Uh, valid and that you they they clear certain aspects uh, of the filtering with you. They might ask you about your compensation or at least your compensation range. It's a figure where it's important not right now uh, because uh, when they ask you this question, they have a range that they can work within. And if your compensation is way higher or way uh, way higher than that range, then they probably prefer to not go through the process with you because probably they cannot afford you and they're not able to go up to the level where you want. So for example, if there's a position open for a developer and you are a senior developer 
and the range stops at a point X and you want X plus whatever figure, uh, they will tell you, no, sorry, the position is too junior for you and we're not going to proceed. Uh, however, if you are a senior developer and you want to work in the, uh, if you want to get the compensation of a, a junior developer, that's also okay. They're not going to mind. They're going to quite be quite happy with it. Uh, that's why sharing your figure at the beginning is, is, is very telling and indicative, and it will set the direction for everything that happens afterwards. Uh, now, uh, the Big Tech interview is composed of multiple loops. And what you need to understand is you have to succeed in all of the loops. So every interview you do, you, you, the, the interviewer will grade you, basically. Strong, no. You're immediately disqualified. No more uh, steps will be, you will not proceed in the loops anymore. That's it. Um, if you do, uh, if you are uh, a, a no, there might be question marks if the hiring manager likes you and someone says no. Some companies will allow you to move forward. Other companies might not. They will also stop the interview process right then and there. Uh, if you get a yes, you will proceed through the steps. And uh, if you get a strong yes, that's a very good indication. Uh, and at the end, if you are compared to another candidate that has received multiple yeses, but you have received a strong yes or two, then you will be the one who will get the offer eventually. And it's, uh, it really depends on the deliberations and the committee that, the, um, that happens towards the end of the interview loops. Now, um, of course, I, I jumped through the steps, but uh, again, we start recruiter, first contact, uh, hiring manager interview the high, the manager who's gonna you're gonna be part of their team is basically gonna have a call with you they're gonna want to make sure that you are a good fit and then the probably the technical screening happens it might be a short technical screen that happens remotely uh, especially if they have to fly you to another country if they, if, they, if you are relocating to a con another country they want to make sure that uh you are qualified enough to solve their technical problems right so they do a small technical screen first so that they don't waste time later and then there's the on-site right now because of covid we're not doing on-sites anymore so everything happens virtually you will probably go through multiple interviews right one after the other with different people a combination of them will be technical assessments coding interviews maybe even a take-home assessment and then you do a technical review of the take-home assessment with the interviewer uh, that's what we do at GitHub, for example. And then uh, after the technical interviews, you will have the behavioral peer interviews. And finally, you will have a last few touch points with your recruiter. And if you succeed through all of these steps, they're going to share with you an offer. And then this is where you negotiate the offer. And if you negotiate the offer and successfully, if it's a US-based company, you will have to go through something called a background check where they will review your legal status and they will leave you your information. And if you pass the background check, that is the last hoop, then they, uh, you are welcome to the team. You have to, be, you have to understand, if they are going to work on uh, a, um, a relocation to another country, there's the visa process. And it's not uncommon for, you, for them to rescind the offer if your visa is not accepted. So there's that condition as well. Um, if your, if your visa is not cleared, they're not going to be able to hire you. And uh, sometimes companies, they tell you, okay, you can stay in your home country for a little bit while still doing multiple trials for the visa. Uh, that happens. 
And uh, what matters is that the visa gets accepted. Once the visa gets accepted, you travel to the other country and you start your job. And that's all good. Uh, there is also a system design interview. Yes, that's totally correct. But it uh, depends on the role, depends on the job, depends on the company. It's not always required, but in big tech, uh, system design definitely will be part of your uh, interview loops. Uh, we don't do one at GitHub for certain roles, but we do it for other roles. And uh, yeah, it's good to prepare for system design. Uh, and when I say technical assessment, in my mind, system design is definitely part of them. All right, so the obsession with big tech <laughs> and why, and the good stuff, the good, the, good, the good side about big tech, right? Let's start with the positive stuff. So the positive stuff is your experience uh, will vary greatly depending on the team that you join. A lot of people think that once you join a big tech company, that's it, you are the king of the world. There's a lot of prestige associated with it. Um, fine, that's all nice, right? But at the end of the day, you are coming here to add value, to do a job, and your experience with your immediate team, your manager, will pretty much dictate your entire experience with this company, at least for the period that you stay within that team. And you have to understand also that moving teams is not easy because um, the way budgeting works in these companies is that each team or each category of, of the business will get a certain budget per year, per quarter, per whatever. And based on that budget, they have an allowance to recruit, which means that if you want to join another team that does not have an allowance to recruit internally or externally, you're not going to be able to join them because they have they don't have a headcount for you, right? So when you join a team, you are pretty much locked for that locked in that team uh, until you probably either find another opportunity internally if they are hiring or if they're not hiring, you probably have no option but to leave the company. So your experience is tied to the manager and the team that you join. Uh, compensation is definitely in the higher market uh, echelons, uh, which means that it will be probably double or triple the market average. And you have to understand the compensation, how it works in big tech. It's uh, a lot of these compensations, they are not high in the base salary. So they are not high in the liquid uh, compensation. You're not going to get $500,000 in cash every year, let's say. And again, this is a very high figure and it only applies to the US. In Europe, the salaries are way, way lower than 500,000, uh, right? Uh, you will be probably in the upper tiers if you get paid more than 100,000 in cash. Um, but yes, 100,000 100, yearly salary is considered to be in the upper ranges when it comes to uh, uh, big tech pay, at least in Western Europe. However, that 100K is gross in cash. You will get on top of it RSUs, restricted stock units, and bonuses, which could be half in cash, or sorry, a portion in cash, a portion in equity, or RSUs. And what RSUs mean is that you will get some stock options that you can only resell to the company. So you will get the stocks, but you cannot really sell them in the market. You can sell them whenever you want, of course, as long as you are employed, uh, but then you can only sell them. So if I get them from company X, I can only sell them back to company X. I cannot really trade them and transfer them to some other brokers or trading platforms. And the bulk of your compensation is going to be in RSUs. So when, when people talk about the salary of, let's say, let's say, again, a random figure, 200,000, that means probably 100,000 in base salary and, um, and probably 100,000 in 
um, equity or RSUs. And you have to understand that these RSUs, you don't get them from day one <laughs> that you can sell them and you get $100,000 in cash or euro in cash. These vest over a period of time, which is generally four years. And then you have a cliff year, which is for the first year, you don't get anything. So you have to spend at least one year in that company before your stocks start to vest or your RSUs. And then your RSUs will vest at a very fixed schedule. It could be on a quarterly basis until at the end of the fourth year, all of your RSUs will have vested with the exception of any bonuses that you might have received during your four year of work. These could have a longer vesting period as well. And um, yeah, it might take some time before you can get cash out on all of this money. So when people share their salaries in big tech, you should definitely understand that they are also sharing their compensation in RSUs. And there are also other forms of benefits, right? So you have insurance, you might have a pension, you might have a car allowance, phone allowance, uh, home office allowance, travel expenses, a lot of nice perks. If you are lucky to work in, an, in a location where the company has an office, you will have access to all of the office perks, which might include breakfast, dinner, lunch, whatever, breakfast and lunch probably, and maybe a gym or you know other, other nice perks. Um, Hamad is asking, do I work at Mang? Uh, well, I work at GitHub. You can consider it Mang. I'm not sure. <laughs> yes, you do. So GitHub is part of Microsoft and I work there. Uh, and this is uh, why I'm sharing with you what I'm sharing. And I am based in the Netherlands. So beyond compensation and the nice perks, you will be surrounded by a ton of amazing, kind, brilliant people. This is, I think, very common across all of the big tech companies. There are a lot of amazing talent. They are uh, senior, sometimes even more overqualified for their roles. Uh, they have probably even started companies and, uh, you know, sold companies and they, they would be joining as, as, a, as a senior engineer next to you. They might be contributors to, uh, you know, popular uh, projects. Uh, and you will never know until they mention it someday or someone uh, talks about them, right? Uh, so there's a lot of amazing talent. You will learn a lot from them. I personally have my teammates and everyone I work with is just brilliant. Uh, they are, uh, they have amazing experience. They are very kind. The culture is awesome. They're fun to work with. And even though we work remote, we have not failed to create a lot of nice moments and bonds. And it's just a pleasure to work with a lot of uh, with the people. And the imposter syndrome will definitely kick in because you're going to feel like you're not good enough. But uh, trust me, you are because you have uh, passed the process. Now, uh, a question from Rami is saying, if the interviewer gave you homework, is it okay to ask for the expected salary before spending time on solving it? As I mentioned, yes, you have to ask for the salary range, especially if uh, the company did not advertise the salary range in the uh, job offer. And to be honest, if the company doesn't want to share that range, that's already a red flag. I'm sorry, companies, you're going to hate me for this, but it's a red flag. If you share your ranges, you will have a higher probability of recruiting uh, more qualified people because they will be able to gauge immediately whether this is worth their time or not, and they're going to give you the best uh, possible option. I don't understand in this uh, day and age where there's a huge demand for software engineers, why we are still holding on to these archaic old ways of working. So Rami, yes, if the interviewer gives you homework, 
you should have already discussed the compensation range. They might not necessarily give you an exact figure for how much you're going to get paid, but they should at least tell you that we are willing to pay within the range of, let's say, I don't know, $10,000, whatever, sorry, $50,000 a year and $70,000 a year, let's say. Okay, as a rough figure. Uh, and yeah, you should know this beforehand. Uh, of course, you should, uh, you should always be professional. You should always be gracious in how you handle these types of things. You cannot be very blunt because this gives a bad impression on you, uh, but you can negotiate in a very fair, pleasant, co comfortable manner, right? You don't have to be, uh, say, you don't have to say, yeah, if you don't share this with me, I'm not going to send back the results. No, just do it in a professional, delicate way and you will get, uh, you will get what you need. All right, now, um, okay, let's go back to the topic of Fang. I want to mention the following. Companies that don't do whiteboard interviews, they exist. And there's a lot of them, a lot. GitHub is one of them. Uh, I personally don't like whiteboarding interviews. They are very discriminatory and they don't allow for a lot of diversity. And then people, basically these companies will recruit more of the same type of people. And these are the people who have the luxury of time on their hands to go and spend months studying lead code questions. And you might ask, why do these companies still do it? Well, the simple answer is they can afford to. It's as simple as that. They, everyone wants to work there. Everyone wants the great compensation. Everyone wants the prestige. Everyone wants to be associated with these big brands. So basically, they have the luxury to say, this is our process, take it or leave it. And uh, they have the luxury of hiring some of the best people in the world. So why should they settle for someone who's not going to study for two months to join this company? Unfortunately, this is the way it is. And if you really want this uh, job, it's not worth fighting it because you're going to be alone and there's going to be plenty of others who are willing to go through the different loops to join these companies and be in the tier one uh, companies of the market. So unfortunately, that's uh, it is what it is. However, you do still have the option and there are a lot of amazing and great companies that don't do this type of interviews. And uh, on the opposite, they give you maybe a take-home assignment. They maybe even do a pair programming uh, technical session with you, which is my favorite. And these are much, much more relaxed. And they, in my opinion, they give a much greater and better signal than uh, doing whiteboard or asking lead code questions. For the startups that do whiteboarding, I say this again, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> Please don't replicate the big tech uh, interview process. I mean, people are willing to go through it for big tech because the compensation is awesome. I'm 100% sure that you cannot afford the same compensation ranges. So yeah, don't make people go through the loops. You're not going to get a better better engineers by doing that. And at the same time, uh, you, you, you're better off doing a much lighter interview that has a higher signal to noise ratio. And uh, you can afford people, you can hire people that are within your uh, range and budget. Now, um, also, I want to mention the last thing about uh, big tech interviews your experience and the outcome of the interview will vary greatly depending on who's your interviewer. And as much as everyone wants to say that uh, tech, uh, big tech interviews are consistent, there are committees, there are people who, uh, you know, uh, 
do trainings for interviews and we want to make them consistent as much as possible. The reality is they're not as consistent as you want them to be. And um, it depends on your luck. It depends on who you are uh, assigned to. There are generally people who across the board who do interviews. Uh, sometimes the people who interview you, you might be on their team, you might not. Uh, some of these people might not have a lot of experience doing interviews. Some of them might have a lot of experience doing interviews. Some of them might be having a bad day. Some of them might be having a great day. <laughs> so it really depends and it depends on your luck. And to be honest, getting hired in big tech interviews, uh, sorry, in big tech, uh, yeah, it, it means a few things, but it doesn't mean a as, as much as people think it means. Uh, it's a combination of luck. You have to be very lucky because it's very competitive. So the timing when you get approached by the recruiter, when you start your interview, when you finish your interview matters a lot. The people you are interviewing against. So if you, for example, you are lucky enough to interview in a pool of talent that is sort of equal in capacity, you might have a chance. If you are interviewing in a pool of talent where you will have extremely more qualified people trying to join many more years of experience, many more you know skills that match the job, you will not have a better chance. It depends on the interview loops uh, and who is interviewing you, as I just mentioned. So there are a lot of variables and it also depends on where you come from. Uh, it depends on the country of origin. If they want to sponsor you for the visa, your chances of getting hired are much, much, much lower than if you work in a country where they are hiring already. So my advice to everyone who wants to relocate to another country, don't do it with big tech companies or any other big enterprise. Find smaller companies who can relocate you. They can do it much more easily. The interview process will be much easier. And then once you move to that other country, you can start preparing for the process of joining one of the bigger organizations and your, your, your experience will be much better and much easier. Uh, and of course, you need to have the necessary experience and skills and whatnot, but it will be much, much easier than having to move you from one country to the other because the bet is going to be much higher. And you have to understand that big tech companies, they want to optimize for, um, they want to optimize to reduce false positives. Meaning, if you are a fantastic candidate, you might be the best person for the job. But if you don't do well on your interviews, they're not going to take the bet on you. Because if they take the bet on you and it turns out to be a bad bet, and if you don't perform as expected, it's very, very expensive for them to let you go. Because for them to discover that you are not effective, it's going to take probably six, seven months. And then they have already paid for you a ton of money. They probably have relocated you maybe. Maybe they have, uh, you are already using the perks and whatnot. And to discover that at a very late point in the game, it's very disastrous, especially because big tech companies take a long time to fill a position. It might, they might, the position to be filled, it might take three months, four, five, and six. So they have already waited five months to fill the position and then they filled it with the wrong person. And then they discovered that that wrong person, that that person is wrong after six months. That's already one year spent. That's very, very expensive. So that's why they need perfection in the interviews before they can take a bet on you, right? And that's why I also say luck plays a big role in this. Because if you're having a bad day yourself and you are not doing a great job, if you, for example, have small problems, like your internet doesn't work on the day of the interview, it happens, right? 
Luck plays a big role in this. So again, this is all I have to say for uh, interviews. I hope I was able to answer a lot of your questions. I see a couple of things on LinkedIn uh, from Hamad uh, Tuban, who is saying, um, you forgot about Canada. I myself immigrated to Canada. Canada has a similar immigration program to the Netherlands. Yes, thank you very much, Hamad. I mentioned that Canada uh, might have uh, easier rules or immigration programs than the United States at a later point. Uh, but thank you for uh, reminding me. Uh, Rudy is saying Canada has Canadian experience issues. Uh, yeah, pro potentially, again, as I mentioned, I, I talk about Europe uh, uh, because that's where my experience lies. I have never applied to Canada or I don't know, but thank you very much for mentioning it. Uh, if Canada is a great place and you want to be there, be my guest. Uh, Hamad is saying uh, getting jobs in Canada are relatively easier. That's all good news. So this is for you folks. If you want to move out, Canada seems to be a good option. Uh, I'm personally aware of a lot of countries in Western Europe and the UK that are hiring now uh, massively in tech. So be on the lookout uh, for these types of jobs. And uh, by the way, in the Netherlands, LinkedIn is a very great platform. If you want to find employment in the Netherlands, a lot of the recruiters, they uh, use it uh, frequently and they will approach you via LinkedIn. So create a, start creating your connections, start applying to jobs via LinkedIn. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, now for big tech, before I forget, I have a few resources that will be amazing, uh, for you to be aware of. So first of all, the top most amazing resource in my opinion is the pragmatic engineer, uh, blog and a YouTube channel and everything else. So, uh, who is the pragmatic engineer? I'm going to drop the link. I'm going to put the link here for you and I'm going to then put it in the description of the video uh, once I publish it on YouTube. And uh, right. So this is the link, first of all, uh, for the Pragmatic Engineer blog. This is uh, Gurgli. I'm sorry if I'm butchering your name, Gurgli, but he is he has been a engineering manager at Uber for a really long time. He has now uh, quit his job at Uber and he is now a angel investor slash um, you know entrepreneur he's doing an amazing work in uh, talking about the whole process of getting interviewed by big tech and how you can prepare for it but he's also talking about uh, tech in general what it means uh, he's giving advice about being technical technical managers or technical engineering managers he's also giving great advice for senior staff plus engineers um, check out his blog check out his youtube channel super amazing content i follow him personally myself I learned a lot from this guy and he has a lot of great resources for how you can prepare for uh, tech interviews in the bigger companies. So that's number the first resource. The second resource I want to mention is for the uh, some of the most more senior people in this live stream who are coming from uh, North Europe, Lebanon, the whole Middle East region. Manara Tech is a boot camp similar to SE Factory that has been started by a uh, friend of mine. She is based in uh, San Francisco and she is helping you folks find employment in big tech. So Manara Tech is a bootcamp that hires um, not fresh graduates per se, but people who have spent a few years in the industry already. And they walk you through the bootcamp and they prepare you for the big tech type interviews. 
they prepare you uh, for the lead code stuff, the, the whiteboarding interviews, system design. They will basically walk you through the whole process of what you need to go through uh, to succeed in a big tech interview. And they will try to place you. They are building relationships with a lot of the bigger companies. And uh, there are amazing stories from the graduates of their program who have actually made it and they have succeeded. So a program like this will increase your chances. Of course, they are not a silver bullet. And even though they promise that they will help you find a big tech job, you might end up in a non-big tech company. You might end up still in a big company, right? But it's not necessarily big tech. You might have a great compensation and you will increase your chances of being relocated to another country than your country of origin if this is something that you wish uh, for. Next resource I want to share with you is the uh, GitHub repository for uh, companies who don't do whiteboarding interviews. And this is the link. Uh, let's show it here. All right, this is the repository, uh, which uh, is called Hiring Without Whiteboards. This is a huge list of companies that hire tech talent uh, without doing whiteboarding interviews. And uh, I hope these resources come in handy for you. Uh, I'm going to, again, drop them all in the description of the recording once I publish the recording of this video right after this session. Now, let's talk about... Um... Oh, there's a question. Aside from system design interviews, what kind of technical experience do I have to have as an entry level to secure a position in big tech? As I mentioned, Hamad, uh, a while ago, entry-level positions in big tech are not that frequent or they are not that ubiquitous why because big tech companies they can afford to hire anyone and you're gonna have a big big hard time finding employment as a junior engineer in big tech what are the skills i can answer so first of all you need to have uh, experience in building scalable solutions scalable solutions be it on bare metal on-prem or in the cloud so you have to have the capacity to understand how the cloud works, how you can what 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 um, how you can architect and design these solutions for scale. Not because you're not necessarily going to work on these solutions when you join the company, but they just want to know and make sure that you have this knowledge before you do. Knowledge about the web, mobile, and all of the deep down details that 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 of how they function and how they work is pretty much necessary, especially in product companies that build SaaS products or mobile apps. Um, knowing everything you need to know about uh, the web is, is important. And I can give you, for example, a question that will gauge your, your level of knowledge. So one question that I really like, and I used to ask my students this question, if you have a browser, you type in a, a domain name in the browser or URL, whatever that URL, explain in as much detail as possible what happens from the moment you hit enter until the moment where the page is rendered in the browser. And you being able to describe everything that happens, even on the small network protocol level, right? And going to the server, what happens over there, how the page is rendered, discussing all the nitty-gritty details of server-side rendering, discussing all the nitty-gritty details of how the browsers work, and how they render, how the rendering engines work, how the parsing mechanisms happen, everything regarding DNS, everything regarding the protocols that govern the internet. This is how you gauge how much knowledge you have in the field. And then this is not enough. Multiply that to 
uh, to a lot of different systems that you might be touching. And these vary from one company to the other. So if you join, for example, fintech companies, if you join companies who do financial transactions, you're going to need to do, uh, you're going to need to have a lot of knowledge about concurrency, multi threading, parallel computing, uh, fast algorithms, data structures. All of these topics are crazy important. So I hope this gives you a little bit of a perspective on the level of experience you need to have for you to secure a job in big tech. Um, it's a lot. And the problem is you cannot really study it over a weekend. And that's what I say, having experience in the field for a certain period of time is very, very important. And all of this, put it on the side, you need to have experience in troubleshooting problems in production. And when the time comes for you to troubleshoot the problem in production, you don't have the luxury of Googling stuff. You need to know this material by heart. You need to be able to troubleshoot by elimination. You need to be a great diagnostician. And for you to be able to diagnose these problems effectively, you need to have experience and you need to have to have seen these problems at a smaller scale maybe before so that the idea that the issue could be somewhere comes to your mind. And of course, these there are there will be new issues to discover, but having the ability to troubleshoot it, even from the operating system level all the way up to looking at diagnostics reports uh, at a high level is, is very, very, very important. Some of the questions you might ask in a technical interview, for example, are if you have an application running on an operating system, how do you troubleshoot performance of this application? The customer is complaining that the application is slow. What do you do? You need to be aware of the operating system details. You need to be aware of the system utilities that we'll be using for this, right? And this is not, again, something you can study over a weekend. You need to build up your experience over time for you to be able to answer this level of questions. I hope I was able to give you some insights, Hamad. Maybe we can do future sessions where we can dig deeper into these details. But again, I don't want to repeat all the material that is already available online. As I mentioned, the Pragmatic Engineer is a great, great reference. And from there, you can branch out to other people who talk about these technical interviews in much more depth. They walk you through the whole process. They can even do simulations. They even do whiteboarding assignments. And they talk about all the system design stuff. I might or might not talk about these things in the future. We will see how much relevant or important these topics are for you. And before we wrap up, I've been talking for an hour and 15 minutes now. <laughs> I want to allocate some time to cover the second part of this uh, live stream. And in the second part, I want to talk about how you as an interviewer should uh, conduct yourself. I'm going to talk about this for 15 minutes because I want to wrap up this live stream. It's been a long session, but I'm really hoping that you are able to get some benefits from it. And without further ado, what does it mean to be an interviewer? So first things first, you need to have the ability to set the stage and the tone of the interview. The way you conduct yourself as the interviewer in the first uh, two to three minutes of the interview is very, very important. You are either you will either make the candidate in front of you feel comfortable and relaxed, or you will make them extremely anxious. And it all depends on everything: your facial expressions, your body language, your tone of voice, how you whether you smile or not, and how you engage with that person it greatly uh, affects them and affects also the outcome of the interview. You definitely want people who are relaxed. You want people who are not anxious. No matter what you do, people are going to be anxious. But there's a different bit, difference between people who are anxious and people who are scared. You have to be, uh, sorry, you have to be, 
empathetic with them. You have to remember that once you were an interviewee yourself, uh, you have to remember that uh, at some point down the line in the future, you're going to do the interview. You're going to be on the other end of the interview as well. And you would want your interviewer to be gracious with you as much as you would need to be gracious with the candidate you are interviewing today. So set the tone, be gentle, try to smile, try to be accommodating, try to welcome them. And if they feel anxious, offer them maybe something to drink if this is an on-site or maybe even throw in a joke if, if that's possible. I don't know, jokes, it's it's iffy because it's <laughs> it could be borderline, um, you know, non-professional. But what I'm trying to say is that make your make them feel comfortable. At the end of the day, the point of the interview is to get to know the person on the other end. And it's not really to challenge them in the sense that you don't want to demonstrate superiority. And we're going to talk about this in a little bit. The second advice I have for you is don't be mechanical. In a lot of these uh, interviews, especially in large companies, they already have created the... Uh, have created the set of questions for you to ask because they want to have assessments of certain areas, right? And they don't want you to go um, think about these questions when you interview that that candidate because the interviews might come in throughout a very busy day for you and they don't want you to really put in a lot of mental effort in, in, in conducting these interviews. That's why they prepare the questions beforehand. So what I want to say here is don't be mechanical and just read the questions from as if you're reading from a script. This doesn't really help anyone. Uh, and it, it's, it gives a very bad uh, experience. And uh, what I want to say is it's okay to go off script. I go off script all the time. And it's, it's, if you, even if you want to read the questions, just try to make them feel, make the candidate feel as if you are actually genuinely interested in them, right? Uh, ask the questions in a tone that doesn't feel monotonic, that doesn't feel like you're reading them. It gives the wrong impression and it changes the whole tone of the, of the interview, right? Third advice is it's okay if candidates make mistakes, for the love of God, they are, they are human beings. You need to convince your interviewees that it doesn't matter and find ways to help them move forward, right? If the, a lot of people try to, a lot of people get stuck a little bit in uh, whatever is happening. And uh, if they make mistake, if they make mistakes, um, if they make mistakes, they just stop, they, they black out, not black out, sorry, they, they have a uh, mental uh, block and then they cannot really move forward. It's your job to help them, you know, feel more at ease, maybe give them a hint. Don't feel them, don't feel, don't show them that by giving them a hint, you are actually, they are actually doing something bad. No, help them get move forward and they might feel more energized and they might actually solve the problem and surprise you. Next is uh, be genuinely interested in the person in front of you. Like a lot of people focus on, we want interviews to be objective. We want interviews to be uh, scientific. I'm sorry, there's nothing scientific about interviews, okay? Interviews are very subjective. At the end of the day, you want to gauge whether you want to work with the person in front of you. It's a very subjective thing. I want to work with people I enjoy working with. I want to work with people who are not just technically capable. I want to work with people who are nice, who are kind, who are great communicators, who people I can learn from, not necessarily just learn technical stuff, but learn life stuff, maybe people who inspire me, right? So again, there's nothing objective about interviews. Let's throw this uh, archaic notion into the garbage. We want to be professional. We want to be consistent. We want to offer the same experience for everyone because we want to make everyone feel like they are getting the same standard of care. But 
interviews are subjective by nature and it's okay to be genuinely interested in the other person. One important thing that I've seen a lot is for the love of God or for the love of anything. Do not compete with your candidate. You are not there to demonstrate that you are more superior than them. You are not there to showcase that you know more than they do. You are not there to um, show them that they are doing a horrible job. If you feel like you're competing with the candidate, please don't do the interview anymore, right? I've seen this a lot. I have done it myself. The first, I, I still look back at the first few interviews I did in my career. No one offered me training for how to interview. And I thought that my job as part of the interviewer is to really compete with the candidate. That was horrible. And I apologize for the people I interviewed at that phase, but I learned from my mistakes. And I, I, if you are competing with your candidates, you are definitely doing it wrong. Please stop. Screen in and don't screen out. This is awesome, an awesome concept uh, that uh, I love. I've heard it uh, very recently. And uh, the concept means a lot of people think that interviews are supposed to uh, filter out the people. Yes and no. You really want to filter out the, comp the people who comp are completely uh, irrelevant for the role. They might be very, very junior for the role, or they might be super overqualified, or they might be applying out of desperation or something else. Uh, the, I understand that these people might not be a fit. Fine. But then there are people who are borderline. Okay. There are people who just need a little bit of a nudge in the right direction to make it. There are people who lack a certain thing, but they have something else that might be at a much higher rate. There are people who might be good candidates for other positions within the company and so on and so forth. It would be great to benefit from them and it would be great to screen in. So basically try to find where they fit as opposed to looking where they don't fit and focusing just on that, right? It's important. Uh, it's an important concept that I have been privileged to learn very recently. And my favorite technical interviewing method is pair programming. There is no better way to learn about how a person thinks and how they solve a problem, except when you try to write code together. And it's very fun and it's amazing. And I have done some pair programming sessions with friends and colleagues, and I always, always learn something new from it. It could be something related to their workflow, to how they think, to how they write their code, to how they structure. It might be a design pattern. It might be so many different ways uh, that are just super, super uh, awesome to learn from people. And of course, you can share a lot of your knowledge with them uh, very indirectly and without patronization, without seeming condescending in how you teach. And the last thing I want to say as a tip for who, people who interview or who are preparing interviews is interviews should not be an exam and they should definitely not include surprises, <laughs> right? It's not like you want to shock people in an interview. Why? What's the point? People say, uh, people justify this. We want to understand how a candidate works under pressure. I'm sorry. <laughs> You're not going to get a good result out of this. You're just going to get someone who is anxious, worried, and they're going to have a mental block. But when they have a good command on the topic and they are able and they are they ha they are able to adjust to the situation and internalize the situation, the situation. So that, for example, if they are dealing with a production incident, they have the luxury to go out, to walk a little bit, to breathe, to you know ponder upon the problem, to have a sip of water, 
to be in a much more relaxed environment before they can solve your problem. This is not the same in an interview where you're constrained in a certain location or maybe in front of your screen and you really want to, to, to just hammer them. And what's the point of surprises? What's the point of not sharing your entire process beforehand so that candidates prepare? Well, one downside would be that the candidates will over-prepare. Okay, fine, but that's not really your problem, right? Be as transparent as possible. Trust me, you will get candidates of a higher caliber, candidates who will not waste your time, and candidates who will perform at much, much better than, uh, than the average. Uh, Code Concept is saying this session has been very informative, especially for me who wants to join Microsoft. Uh, I could really use you as my mentor. Uh, yeah, thank you very much for your support. I appreciate that. My DMs and uh, my private messages are always open. Uh, if you require some help, don't hesitate. Definitely share, uh, you know, send me a message. I would love to help. What I want to say is please don't send me a message saying hi. I definitely don't have the time to chat. So what I have the time for is if you ask me directly a question, I will find or squeeze in a few minutes to be able to write down an answer for you. But if you say hi and you wait for me to respond and then it takes you a few hours to get back to me with a, with a question, you know, I'm not going to be able to answer you. I'm sorry. I have very, very busy days. Today I worked for 10 hours and now I'm doing this live stream. I really don't have time to, you know, just have conversations. I'm sorry. I'm not trying to be, you know, uh, I'm just sharing with you the reality. I just do this in my free time and I, I don't have a lot of time for, for engagement. So please send me directly the question. Don't be, don't be worried. I'm not going to be annoyed if you don't say hi or ask how I'm doing. Ask me the question and I would love to help. And uh, Code Concept, I don't know. I don't see your name, but uh, I wish you the best of luck in your interview process and uh, good luck getting accepted and uh, at Microsoft, I'm pretty sure we do have a need for a lot of amazing people. And there are already a lot of awesome people who work at this uh, great, great company. All right. I think we have come to the end of uh, the session. I have nothing more to share with you. I think I have spoken a lot today. One more time. Thank you very much for everyone who is watching these live streams. You are a great, great, great support. Um, I love everything that uh, I love helping people. You know, I love sharing all of my experience, even if it takes whatever time that it takes uh, with you. I love the engagement today. Great questions from everyone. I loved seeing a lot of the very familiar names to me. I loved seeing some friends in the chat. And for the people I don't know, thank you very much for coming in. And I hope these sessions were informative and they were able to help you a little bit in your, on your journey. As I mentioned, my DMs are open. Feel free to engage with me on all of the channels, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, uh, whatever you want. And even on GitHub, uh, I'm always happy to uh, receive engagements from you. And uh, yeah, we're going to have uh, many more future sessions. I have a lot of thoughts on what I'm going to do next. I'm probably going to talk about um, next time about being a generalist or being a specialist and what is better. This is a very interesting topic for me. I really love um, this. As a, you know, I'm going to drop a hint. I'm a generalist myself. Uh, I specialize in a few things, but I prefer to be a generalist and I prefer to have this holistic view of the, of the field. I love the field. It's my passion. We're going to talk more about it in a future live session. We're probably going to also cover the imposter syndrome and how you can deal with it, uh, especially if you join uh, a lot of uh, some of the great companies and you work with great people. And until then, I want to wish you the best of luck. I love you all. Have a great uh, week ahead. Uh, and I will see you next time. Cheers.